It's the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. Our very first podcast at maybe one of the most dangerous times, at least in my lifetime, and maybe in the last century. When I coined the term dangerous love for the book uh, that will be coming out in June, I wasn't thinking about a pandemic. I was thinking about personal relationships, relationships and communities, relationships with others. I didn't consider that before the book would even come out, that humanity would face such an existential crisis as the one that we're all facing right now with COVID-19. And so our inaugural podcast has to deal with the most dangerous thing in the room, in our, in our families, in our relationships, in communities uh, at the start, because that is all of our lives right now. We are in a unique time in the history of the world. And, you know, I'm a reader. I, I studied history when I was uh, an undergrad in college. And I can't think of a parallel time in history. Certainly there's been many plagues and pandemics, uh, ones that uh, could end up being far more deadly than the COVID-19 one. But we are in an age where we are both intensely connected with social media um, and our ability to, to travel and move around the world and, and see and learn things at a rapid pace. But we are also in a major age of disconnection all of that technology, all of that ability to communicate has in many ways dwindled our ability to really thrive in the relationships that, that matter uh, most to us. We are both in an age of connection and disconnection. And because of that, the new guidelines around social distancing take on an entirely different different meaning uh, for many people. And and I, and I know for me as well, it is going to test our relationships with our family, with our community, um, with each other in ways that I'm not sure that we're totally ready for. And so uh, more than ever, fear is playing a large role in, in the decisions that we're making or not making right now. Uh, anxiety has gripped so many of us. And, and when I was writing the book, Dangerous Love, I actually started with, with fear, fear being the enemy to conflict. If you think about conflict as being something neutral, it's a, it's a problem that needs to be solved with no clear solutions to the problem. Conflict could be both positive and negative. The, the problem with, with conflict is when fear creeps in, our ability to collaboratively problem solve with others diminishes. Uh, and in this particular case, it's an interesting sort of fear, right? Because fear of a virus, a virus that could take the life of an estimated 1 to 3.5 or 4% of the world's population is certainly something to be afraid of. It's a rational fear to be afraid of getting sick or having a loved one uh, get sick. It's rational to be afraid of the 
economic and social ramifications that that come uh, from a disease like COVID-19. All of that, to me, seems incredibly rational, if you will. But right alongside that, if you've been reading the news at all, you know that that with that comes a fear of people. Uh, It has exacerbated our polarization, our political polarization, family polarization, community polarization in in, in really uh, real ways. There has been racism, discrimination, uh, anger, hatred, all that have come because the virus has evoked um, within each of us our, our worst fears. And, and that sort of fear is the fear that really scares me. We, we need to be diligent. We need to wash our hands, practice social distancing, uh, practice good hygiene, um, look out for our neighbors. And, and all of that may mean that we have to have a healthy dose of fear about, about this virus and, and what it can do. Uh, to people in our community, even if it necessarily doesn't mean that it will do anything to us. But we also have to be careful that we're not afraid of people. And that, that fear of people is really going to destroy whatever good can come from something like this. And, and one of the concepts that I talk about uh, in the book is, is, is naming, naming types of fear. And, and, I, and I give two examples uh, in the book. One is uh, the smog uh, view of conflict. And the smog view of conflict is a bit like it sounds, right? Like conflict to me is like smog. It's everywhere. It's not good for me. It's hurting me. But there's also nothing I can do about it. It's inevitable. It's there. Even if I buy a Prius or uh, I, you know, I bicycle to work every day. I might be able to do a small, tiny bit, but the overall larger problem of smog doesn't go away. And, and because of it, uh, I feel anxious and, and deeply concerned about conflict. And, and then I react in, in really basic fear type of ways, right? I either avoid if there's a way to avoid it, or I flee from it if I can, or if I don't feel like I can get away from it, then then force or uh, even violence at times. I, I try to attack it head on and, and, and try to defeat it that way. But there's another way to look at conflict. Uh, we call it in the, in the book, the cocoon conflict. And the, and the metaphor goes something like this, right? That you're a caterpillar and you're walking around and you're, you're eating your leaves and, and you're, uh, you know, you're doing okay. Uh, but it's ultimately time for you to become a caterpillar. So you, you build this chrysalis, you build this cocoon, you go inside, and, and then, you know, what happens next is really fascinating. You know, as a young person, I always thought, look, a butterfly is a, is a, is a, is a caterpillar with wings. That, that's essentially what happens is it goes in and it, it just kind of sprouts wings and then it comes out. But if you've ever looked at a, at a butterfly closely, you know, it doesn't really look anything at all like, like a caterpillar. It, it, the, the caterpillar, for all intents and purposes, dies. And, and when it dies, uh, it, it transforms into something else, something beautiful, something that, that is amazing. But it's definitely something that is different. And, and one way to think about conflict is that we, we go into this uh, chrysalis or cocoon, and it, it's tight, it's scary, it's dark, uh, something fundamentally 
changes. Um, we're never the same as we come out, but we come out the other side with wings um, and, and we can fly. And how we view this conflict with COVID-19 is going to make all the difference in the world. Do we view it from a smog point of view? It's coming to kill us. There's nothing I can do about it. It's going to be awful and miserable. Or do I approach it from a cocoon point of view? And do I look at it as how do I take this experience that's going to be painful, that's going to be difficult, that is going to ask me to change in fundamental ways, ways which may forever change me and, and learn and learn how to fly. And at the, at the heart of that smog versus cocoon sort of debate is this debate between self-preservation, which is the smog point of view, right? Conflict is scary. It's dangerous. It's coming for me. And so therefore I need to run and hide or I need to fight. I need to do whatever I can to protect myself or the cocoon point of view, which is about us preservation. It, and, and that's a really critical word, us preservation, because I'm not talking about uh, preservation that is just about other people. In other words, I put everybody else first. It doesn't matter if I put myself at risk or what have you. Uh, it, uh, the other people are the only thing that matters. That, that's not actually sustainable either, and lots of people do that. It just it doesn't work in the long term. I'm talking about us preservation, and when I say us preservation, that that not only do my needs, wants, desires, dreams, challenges, pains matter, but so do other people's, right? In fact, they matter as much to me as my own matter to me, and therefore I have to take them into consideration. And the only way that we're actually going to get through things like this and collaboratively problem solve is if we do it together. And this situation that we're in right now, it reminds me of uh, of a book that I read in graduate school, one that stayed with me. In fact, I have um, students in my group conflict class read the read a several chapters from this book right at the beginning of the semester. Uh, the book is called The Shangtung Compound, and it's it's by Langdon Gilkey. It's a it's a true story, and Gilkey is a young American teacher at a university near Peking, China. And the Japanese military, under, under wartime pressure in World War II, round up all the foreigners, and they, and they put them in an internment camp. And, and they're there for two and a half years in this internment camp. And they round up foreigners. It's Americans. It's British. Uh, it's uh, people from uh, countries throughout the world that were not Chinese or not Japanese. And they're all thrown together into this internment camp. And, and essentially, all they're given is some, some basic supplies and then sort of told to, to figure things out. It's, it's anarchy in many ways. Their, their world has, has fundamentally changed. And, and Gilkey is, is, a, is an American uh, missionary uh, who is there. And, and he's keeping a journal. And, and he's writing about the conflicts that happen uh, the personalities uh, that that are inevitably clashing. Uh, it's at times horrific. It's at times sad. It's at times hilarious. And it is telling because so many of the things that are going to happen in the story are the same sort of things that are going to happen to us uh, in the next 
in the next uh, few months, uh, maybe years. He notes that it turns out that your status in life, your socioeconomic status, what your, uh, what your profession is, uh, many of the things that mattered so much on the outside don't really matter in this internment camp anymore. It really is, are you helpful and are you kind? Uh, and, and can you work well with others? Those turn out to be the three major, major values that end up mattering in this internment camp. And he writes at one point that what starts to happen is that health becomes defined, uh, wellness becomes defined as moral health. In other words, our ability to see others as people, to work with other people, um, to live with them, uh, to be able to be collaborative, that is the thing that ultimately matters in this community. And Gilkey uh, is going to tell stories about people that were incredibly famous, incredibly successful in life that just absolutely failed at this test. And then some of the lowliest of people all thrown in uh, to this same environment that, that actually, that actually thrive. Um, and I, I want to just read a little bit um, from his book because I, it, it's, it always, it always um, fascinates me. He says, as this experience so cognitively showed, while there are things that are essential for life, ultimately things are ineffective unless they stem from some cooperative spirit within the community. Far from being at the periphery of life, spiritual and moral matters, moral matters are the foundation for all of our daily work in the world. And then he says this, that my thoughts seem to have run into a strange, strange dilemma. In, in my class, I call this the, the Gilkey Paradox. And he says, two things that are apparently contradicted each other have become transparently clear in this experience. First, I had learned that men need to be moral, that is, responsibly concerned with their neighbor's welfare, as well as their own, there's the uh, uh, us preservation, if human community was to be at all, a po at all possible. But then here's the other point. Equally evident, however, men did not or could not so overcome their own self-concern to be thus responsible to their neighbor. And I just want to read that again, right? It says that on one hand, he learned that people need to be moral, concerned with their neighbor's welfare as well as their own, if human community was going to be possible, but also people did not or could not so overcome their own self-concern to be thus responsible to the neighbor. And that's the paradox that, that works through um, the uh, in, entire book. And he says that a resolution of such a contra contradiction in existence could only take place in life, not merely in thought about it. A better philosophy, a cleaner and more coherent way of thinking about things will not be enough. Only a change in the mode and character of a man's existence will resolve this sort of problem. If the self were to find a new center from which both its own health and security, as well as its creative relation with the neighbor might flow, such a possibility alone could provide the answer to the dilemma. It could provide the answer to the world. We're at one of those moments right now 
where we know that for human community to thrive, we have to take into account the welfare of our neighbors right now. Even if COVID-19 doesn't seem particularly fatal in your age group or your socioeconomic um, group, even if you feel like you're going to have the best health care, even if you feel like you're incredibly strong right now, so why should I self-quarantine? The answer is because your neighbor may not be. And we have to be reasonably concerned um, with our neighbor. And of course, if you watch the news right now, you know that that's really hard. It's really hard for people. Beaches and bars that aren't closed are are still crammed. Uh, People are struggling uh, to do this. And even the people that are really, really trying hard are finding it's a lot to do. Uh, I now have to face relationships with my family, um, with others, in ways that, that maybe work or social life we're able to mask over. And so the book uh, that I wrote uh, was called Dangerous Love. And why do we name it Dangerous Love? Well, if you think about conflict, it, it feels dangerous. We avoid it if we can. If we can't, we prepare for war. Or we build walls to protect us from impending harm emotionally and physically. Uh, we, the, the, the stuff that we fear is coming. And, and fear and conflict manifests itself in so many ways, fear of conflict, fear of the people I'm in conflict with, fear of emotional or physical pain, fear of not being loved or seen the way that we want to be seen. Uh, yet despite our fear of conflict, it plagues our professional and, and personal relationships. We're actually really not good at it. And so I wrote the book because really knowing how to transform conflict is, is really critical. Um, there's got to be a different way to see it and a different way to see the people that we are in conflict with and, and a way to love the people we are in conflict with through the conflict. And I know that word love is tricky. In fact, people try to talk me out of using the word love because we use love in so many different ways. And I'm not not talking about romantic love, though that would be nice to be sequestered with someone that you might feel romantic love with. And nor am I talking about the sort of love that that comes from from someone you like. Again, it would be really nice to be sequestered with all the people that we like, doing all the fun things that we like. Um, that's not the sort of love that, that I'm talking about here. Um, I'm talking about the sort of love that um, takes hold of our views of ourselves, others, and conflict itself. And we no longer see enemies or others in conflict. We, we see us. We have a level of care and concern towards the people that we are in conflict with that's, that's so clear that we see their needs mattering just as much as our own. And that's actually what it takes to be able to truly solve the most difficult, intractable challenges we, we face in life. It takes that type of love to mend relationships in our families. It takes that type of love to overcome gridlock in the workplace. It takes that sort of love to solve for deep partisanship in our communities and our countries. It takes that sort of love to collaboratively problem solve with our adversaries internationally. It's going to take that sort of love for us to not only survive, but thrive in the COVID-19 pandemic. So what is dangerous love? It's choosing love over fear in the face of conflict. It's choosing we over me. Fear is about self-preservation. Dangerous love is about us preservation. 
Dangerous love transcends that fear. It transforms conflict by calling us to let go of self-concern. What will happen to me if I let my walls down and help the person I'm in conflict with? And embrace us concern. What will happen to us if I don't? And while many of you are hearing this right now and saying, oh, sure, that sounds hard in normal life. How in the world am I going to do that uh, in the midst of a pandemic when those fears are so palpable? And the answer is, look, it's going to require courage. It's going to require fearlessness. It's going to be scary. There's risk. There's going to be casualties. Our life is going to change. But the life that it could change could be extraordinary. Um, This could be an extraordinary time. It calls on us to open ourselves up with no guarantee that other people on the other side of the conflict are doing the same. It asks us to be vulnerable It's not safe. It's not necessarily guaranteed. It's not the easiest path forward. But I believe it's the only path that we have to really transform the relationships that need to transform right now. I was going to have a guest on, um, someone who I think really epitomizes dangerous love in in the time of of a pandemic, Uh, But he's actually so busy dealing with this right now that we just couldn't get our 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 times aligned and and get him to come home, uh, come onto the show. But I want to talk to him a little bit, uh, talk about him a little bit. And he he's representative of thousands and thousands of people who are doing exactly what I'm talking about. His name is Dr. Jason Hughes. Uh, He runs a small clinic here on the North Shore of Hawaii. He picked this clinic up here uh, because it it served an underrepresented population that didn't have access to good health care. And so as he left medical school and he decided where he wanted to go, he essentially opened up a rural health clinic. Dr. Hughes is like one of those old doctors that, that you hear like your grandparents talk about. He makes house calls at times. He texts you to find out how you're doing or to check up. He brings to your house chocolate chip cookies uh, when he finds out there's someone who's sick. He always says thank you to his patients. I'm not not joking. Uh, Thank you to his patients for letting him be part of their life um, and to treat him. And on more than one occasion, uh, he has literally helped save the life of one of my um, family members because he's thorough, because he keeps searching for answers if things aren't quite going right until he can get uh, to the bottom of things. Now, what is he doing right now? He's at his health clinic and people are coming in that are sick. They don't know whether they have COVID-19 or maybe it's the flu or a cold or strip throat or whatever. He doesn't know when they walk into his clinic um, what they're coming, what they're coughing on him, what the germs are. The clinic has been overrun um, with people, um, some who are just going through, again, the bad, bad flu season or what have you, and others who, because of a lack of testing here in Hawaii and, and many other places, that, that might actually be sick. 
the nurses, the staff, uh, every day are loving dangerously. If they ask themselves for a second, what would be the safe thing to do or the easy thing to do? It would be to not show up at work. It would be to, to take themselves and their family and quarantine themselves off and just hope that this passes. But because they're doctors, because they're healthcare professionals, um, because they're in this helping profession, profession, every day they show up at work, put their lives at risk uh, in grueling fashion sometimes to try to heal and help as many people as possible. Dr. Hughes isn't alone. Health clinics, hospitals throughout the world right now are overrun. Doctors are literally passing out from exhaustion. They are putting themselves at risk. Some are getting infected, including the doctor from China that first really raised the alarm about the COVID-19 virus, whose life actually passed away from the virus, most likely from a massive exposure to it and trying to help as many patients as he can. We know that we can't get through this without our doctors, without our nurses, without our uh, medical staffs, um, without pharmacists, uh, without all the people that are right now going to be on the front lines. And any one of them at any time could say to themselves, if this is about self-preservation, I'm, I'm out of here. But they don't. Um, they're here trying to help you and I and our neighbors and everyone else. And I'm mindful when we talk about dangerous love, we're talking about what motivates someone like Dr. Hughes uh, to do something like that. Why not pick another profession or, hey, it's great when you're just wiping runny noses, but now that there's a pandemic and a virus that comes out, what does this mean for him? What does it mean that he brings the virus home to his family? He's got a family and kids. What motivates someone like that? And, 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 I, and if you know Dr. Hughes, and I can't say this is true for every doctor, but, but, I, but I know that it's true for him. He sees people and he doesn't make a differentiation between them and him. Their needs, desires, and concerns matter as much to him as his own do. He cares. He sees people as people. He's willing to live and love dangerously. Um, and to me, he's, he's a powerful example. And so we started something, my partner, Bailey Rasmussen, uh, who does such an amazing job with, with all of our social media, and she really came up with the idea of doing something called the Dangerous Love Challenge, seeing people as people in the midst of a global pandemic. And the idea was that now in this moment of fear, in this moment of uncertainty, stress, and anxiety that's, that's taken over our lives and a planet, how do we get better at not just seeing ourselves and our needs? How do we get better at not listening to that self-preservation voice 
And how do we start listening to that us preservation uh, voice? How do we get better at working together as a family, as a community, in a dangerous, scary, or difficult time? What does that look like in our own life? And we want to issue that challenge to you today. And we want to hear back from you. You can go on Facebook. You can go on Instagram. uh, You can go on Twitter. um, And we're asking the question, what does that look like in this time, in this space to see people as people? How do we recognize that other people's needs, desires, cares, worries, and fear matter as much as our own? How do we see them in a way that allows us to be helpful and start to contribute to the problem instead of being part of the problem. And so every week, every day this week, there's been a, been a challenge. And, you know, day, day one was considering yourself, right? How do I show love and, and notice my own needs? Because frankly, we know that's a problem for many people is that they just don't even see their own. And so how can someone else's matter as much to me as my own when my own don't matter to me? And so how do we find uh, ways to, to take space for ourselves to be healthy um, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually? And we, we've noticed that that's really hard. And some of the feedback that we've gotten from people is that that's, that's really hard. Some of this stuff that's happening right now, personally, culturally, is, is really disconcerting. And then, and then day two was consider someone in your home, family or close friends who are being affected in some way. Um, and how do you see them as a person? And then uh, the, the challenge on Thursday was consider somebody in your community, locally, virtually, or globally, who's being affected in some way. And, and how do you see them as a person? And that is the question. How do we do that? How do we see those people and, and what does that look like? And, and who are those people? Someone who's sick, um, someone who's grieving because someone in their life is sick, someone who's immune compromised or elderly and how their life is rapidly changed. Uh, someone who's close to someone who's immune compromised or elderly that doesn't feel like they can have the same relationship with them right now out of protection for them. How do we care for people that have lost their jobs and aren't sure how they're going to make ends meet right now. And that is a growing segment of our population. What about our healthcare providers? How, how do we take care of the Dr. Hughes's of the world and nurses and support staff uh, who are working tirelessly and dangerously to care for those that are afflicted? What about owners of small businesses who may be thinking right now that they may never be able to recover from something like that? What about people that don't have paid sick leave or health insurance or child care or are disabled and don't really know how they're going to get help from their caregivers right now? Um, what about people that are, are separated in some ways uh, from other people right now and they, they can't get back? Um, you think about the people that are still going to be on the front line. We talked about the healthcare workers, but also people that are working at grocery stores or postal workers um, or hardware stores or drug stores or other people that still need to go out, first responders, people that need to go out every day and continue to do their jobs that they can't sequester because their jobs are so important to keeping society afloat right now. And uh, what about the people that are being targeted by racism, xenophobia, um, or some sort of other stigma, stigma right now or being blamed in some way um, for the virus or people that are being shunned because they have it because we're all afraid um, of them right now. What about the people that are at home 
sequestered that are prone to anxiety or depression or other things that the isolation and all the stuff that's going around is only heightening um, their anxiety or people that are in abusive relationships that are now being asked to sequester in a space with a place that they don't particularly feel safe. We could go on and on. Uh, there are a lot of people hurting. And one of the things I always comment on in, as being a conflict mediator is I'm amazed at how much pain there is um, in the room right now. And there is pain everywhere right now. And we can, come, we can become consumed by that pain. I get that. We can do that. Or we can look at other people's pain. And we can try to find a way together to lift each other up, to take care of one another, to serve one another, to be in this moment where no one can blame anyone for being obsessed with their own physical and mental well-being. To ask the question, not just what will happen to me, but what will happen to us. And we serve in the ways that we can. We love in whatever way we can. We help in whatever way we can. We turn outward instead of inward. At a moment in history when the world needs as many outward people as we can. We've also created on Facebook a Loving Dangerously community where people can begin talking. We're going to do some live videos. We're going to do some Q&As. This podcast is going to keep running as long as it needs to. We're going to take on different topics that are related to conflict, but especially given where we're at right now in our time and age, how they might be related to COVID-19. And so, for example, I think our next topic is going to be on marriage. And in a recent article that I read that said, that divorce experts expect there to be a massive spike in divorces because married couples are spending too much time together and are getting on people's nerves. You see all throughout social media, moms and dads exhausted by having to figure out how to homeschool their kids and have them home all day and keep them quarantined. We're gonna have a parenting podcast. We're gonna think about how to stay energized at work and still focused and helpful in whatever our jobs might be outward to other, even if we can't come into those jobs we're going to just keep working and working at this and talking. I'm going to bring on guests onto the podcast. We're going to have a number of guests on our Loving Dangerous community uh, at, uh, at Facebook, Loving Dangerously community. And, and we just would like you to join us, like you to enter the conversation, like you to tell us what's going on uh, in your life, whether those are good things or hard things. We want to hear about them. We want to hear the stuff, the, the inspiring stuff that's happening with humanity right now. And we also want to feel your pain, whatever that may be. Dangerous love is never easy, but I remain convinced that it is the thing that can transform our relationships at home, at work, in our community, in the world. And right now, I believe it is the thing that will save us, transform us in the best possible ways from COVID-19.